Well, over uh, the past year or two, I've been uh, trying an experiment. Uh, and it's an experiment that's really become more of a regular practice now in my life. I'm trying to say words that build people up. And one of the places I'm doing that is uh, in brief encounters with people. So every time I uh, encounter a clerk at a store at a checkout line or at Starbucks or an airline check-in counter or a department store or a waiter, I try to discover their name and use it. And I try to sincerely thank them for what they're doing. You know, I say, Juan, you know, thanks so much for making that drink for me. I really appreciate it. Or Carolyn, you're doing such a great job of checking everybody in, even though the flight delay has, has made everybody kind of cranky. You're doing a great job. Thanks so much for your help. Or, or Jeff, thanks, thanks so much for your help. I really appreciate you bagging my groceries today. Thank you. And it's, it's amazing to me uh, how often people are completely surprised by that. They are sometimes stunned and some of them genuinely touched by this affirmation, this simple, simple affirmation. And lines like this, well, well, that's what I'm here for. You're so welcome. Or, or thank you for saying that. I, I'm, I'm happy to help. Or it's, it's been a really hard day. Thanks for recognizing I'm making the effort to get everybody on the plane, even though there's this big delay. And I realize that even in simple words of affirmation, there's a lot of power. Power to affirm, power to connect, power to build up. Our words matter. And they are some of the best tools we have to build people up. Jeremiah, the, the book we've been looking through, this, examining the life of this uh, prophet and his message, he was, at the heart of his call was to use his words to build up this nation. This nation who had wandered and God wanted to be back on track. God, through Jeremiah, was trying to build up this nation of Israel, Judah, into a nation that worshipped only the true God, that repented of its wanderings and its uh, wickedness, that uh, trusted the truth, and that lived as a blessing to God and to the world. And this was always God's plan and his vision for his people. And Jeremiah is the prophet that God chose to remind Israel, Judah, of, of this and to call them back to this blueprint. George mentioned uh, last week the Winchester House of Mystery in San Jose, California. I've been there, walked walk the halls. <laughs> I grew up in that area. And it, it did not have a blueprint. It had all kinds of weird winding hallways and stairways and doors to nowhere. And this is what Israel and Judah had become. But God had always had a blueprint, and God, through Jeremiah, is calling the nation back to that vision, to the blueprint. But they did not repent. They did not turn back to God. Instead, they, they worshiped other gods that aren't gods. In Jeremiah 2, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And later in, in the same chapter, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their backs to me and their faces. But in the time of their trouble, they say, come and save us. So Jeremiah's word from God is meant to build up that nation to heal it, to reshape it. 
And he spoke this truth in love, although it was a very piercing truth in the face of how they were living. And he called them to repent and to turn back to God. I mean, God would even start there if they were willing to turn around. But the reality is they did not repent. They denied the truth. And so God was going to reshape them in a more extreme way. And so we come to our text today um, from Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. It's found on page 629 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. Let me just describe it first before we read it together. This is one of Jeremiah's powerful sermons. It's really a parable. It's a parable of a, a pot being thrown by a potter. The pot becomes misshapen and is spoiled. So the potter takes the same clay and squishes it down and reshapes it, uh, reshapes the pot into another one. So let's read this together from, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 18. Stand if you're able and let's start with verse one in Jeremiah uh, chapter 18 and we'll read um, through verse, um, let's see where are we reading to? <laughs> We're reading through uh, verse 9, that's right. Okay, here we go. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making was clay, was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as the potter has done? Say to the Lord, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intend to bring on it. And in another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. This is the word of the Lord. This is a a very familiar picture to all the people of Israel. Um, Potters are very common. They use these tools all the time, pottery. So the image is simple and it's a powerful image. Because they have not repented, God is going to reshape them. God is not going to throw them away. God is going to rebuild another pot out of the same clay. And the way God is going to do this is by sending them into exile into Babylon. This is where God is going to put them. And it will be their calling to be in exile for 70 years. God sends them there and he gives them an assignment while they are there. An assignment to build houses and plant gardens and get married and the kids should marry and have families as well. They're going to be there a while. And this is the famous text from Jeremiah 29 that also uh, kind of shows how much God is planting them there. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in it, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So this is the exile, this is the place of reshaping. So now let's fast forward to Ephesians uh, chapter four, our second text for the day that Dave read a little earlier. I mean, God has commissioned Paul 
as a disciple to build up God's people like Jeremiah and to welcome new people into God's family as well. It is what God is about, calling uh, people to a community that is shaped by the gospel. Same blueprint, centered on the true God, one that repents of its wanderings, one that trusts the truth, one that lives as a blessing to God and to the world and to each other. So Paul joins this mission that God has always been about, the God's blueprint, it, it, because it's for our individual lives, it's for us as a community. It was true in the time of Jeremiah, and it's true in the time of Paul, and it is true right now. So in this text in Ephesians 4, uh, in the latter verses 25 through 32, we re receive several instructions. But the headline really is to speak truth to our neighbors, speak the truth in love to our neighbors, for we are members one of another. So there's a commission. We're really invited into the prophetic work of God, speaking truth to each other. And this text also uh, gives several instructions, uh, helping us understand what it means to live a life uh, worthy of the gospel. It says, be angry, but don't lose your temper. Uh, work and be generous, don't steal. Be kind and loving, not bitter or mean. And the one uh, kind of admonition I think that ranks uh, most central as we think about our sermon today, um, use your words to build up so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Verse 29 says it this way. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Words that give grace to those who hear. I read an article a few weeks ago by Peter Weiner in the New York Times. The title of the article was The Uncommon Power of Grace. And in it, he describes a, a conference that was held uh, decades ago on comparative religions where experts gathered from around the world to debate which belief, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis happened into the room while this discussion was going on. It must have been in Oxford or something. When he was told the topic was Christian, Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy, it's grace. And Lewis is exactly right, isn't he? I mean, no other religion places grace at its theological center. It's revolutionary. It seems to go against every instinct of humanity. We are naturally drawn to earning what we receive and to cause and effect. There is a radical equality that is at the core of grace. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And none of us deserve it. It's not dependent on social status or wealth or intelligence. It, there is an equality between kings and peasants, the prominent and the anonymous, rule followers and rule breakers. And Weiner says that if you find yourself in the company of people whose hearts have been captured by grace, count yourself lucky. They love despite our messy lives. They stay connected to us through our struggles, always holding out hope of redemption. And when relationships are broken, it is grace that causes people not to give up, to extend invitation to reconnect, to work through misunderstandings with sensitivity and transparency. And so this instruction from Paul, use your words to build up 
so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Words that give grace, it is what we uniquely have to share, isn't it? Our words, sharing God's grace to build up people's lives. It was uh, late in my dad's life that he discovered grace. My dad uh, died this past October at the age of 93, almost 94. And when my dad was young, he, he lived for a few years with his grandparents, and he remembers his grandmother teaching him the Sunday school lesson on Saturday that she was preparing to teach on Sunday. He really loved his grandmother. But I think most of my, what my dad learned about faith in God growing up was to live a good life. Do more good than bad. Be a good person. Do the right thing. That's how he lived. My dad didn't go to church until after he retired uh, and moved up here to Seattle. And one Sunday I saw my dad uh, coming out of a worship service here at University Presbyterian Church in the Narthex. And he came right up to me and he said this, you know, Tim, this, this grace stuff, it's pretty good. It made me smile, for sure. Uh, I mean, all the discussions about faith that we'd had, all the talks we'd had about God, are really summarized best, I think, in that statement. This grace stuff is pretty good. I said, Dad, you know, it really is. That's why they call it the good news. It was, it was fun for me to see my dad wake up to the love that God had for him that he did not have to earn by living a good life. It was already there before my dad took his first breath. To wake up to the fact that you are God's beloved child is truly good news, isn't it? And I think we, uh, he began really to understand maybe the power of that love and the forgiveness through Jesus Christ more each year, and I think it changed him. So if grace is this unique gift of Christianity, how do we use our words to build up, giving grace to our neighbors? And George said a few weeks ago that a prophetic word is personalizing God's word for a specific person. So how do we do, how do we personalize God's word of grace for our neighbor? What does it look like to do this? Well, I think one of the ways we do this is we, um, is really through the practice of friendship. It takes more than my experiment using words to build up my barista or the gate agent at the airport or uh, the checker at QFC or the wait, wait staff that I encounter, that helps. It helps them to know grace. But my kind words are really just a gracious start, aren't they? But I have to move closer than that for people perhaps to understand it. And one, one of the practices that uh, we were challenged by a few weeks ago was to slow down enough in order to make room for friendship. It is so hard for us to do that in the pace of our lives, isn't it? Sometimes all of our friendship uh, valences are filled up. And I think really the phenomena of Seattle nice is often really a result of the speed with which we're living our lives. A speed that pushes out room for new friendships. And as a result, we keep people at a distance and give them the beginning words of grace, but not invest further in that. In order to personalize God's word of grace to our neighbor, I think we have to know him. We have to think about how grace might become real to them. What words do we share that are specifically for them? I mean, knowing their context, knowing who's in their family, knowing what concerns are on their hearts makes a difference in that. 
When I was in uh, graduate school, one of the concepts I learned about was the difference between primary and secondary relationships. Primary relationships are those like our family or our close friends, uh, those people we make time for and we invest in. And secondary relationships are people that uh, have more, we have more of a superficial relationship with. We may treat them more impersonally, uh, like a transaction and not a person. It includes really the people I mentioned earlier, right? Uh, People that we just encounter briefly in our lives. So how do we make room for a neighbor to move from a secondary to a primary relationship? How do we take God's word of grace and personalize it for them so that we build them up in grace? One way, I think, is we have to make room for friendship. We need to be willing to invest. And additionally, we need to learn the practice of how to personalize God's word of grace for that new friend. I mean, what do we say? What's the message we'd actually share with them? I mean, oftentimes it starts with some combination of generosity and kindness and empathy and forgiveness, really extending ourselves perhaps above the call of duty, showing up in their lives. I mean, these are characteristics of lives that are shaped by grace. A friendship begins. And then words begin to form that remind our friend of God's grace. I mean, God loves you. Uh, Jesus gave his life for you. You are one of God's favorites. Uh, Even in the mess of our lives, you are loved. You are a miracle of God's creation. Before any of us took a breath, God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ. You have extraordinary gifts to share. These words are good news, aren't they? but they often can fall flat without a relationship. Uh, one 4th of July, I was uh, at an outdoor concert and there were thousands of people at this concert. It was very loud, it was incredibly crowded, all the walkways were jammed. And I remember walking down this walkway and in the middle was kind of an island flower bed. And in the middle of the flower bed was a guy standing there with a bunch of signs and a megaphone. And his message was this, God loves you, repent, Turn your lives around. Believe the truth of Jesus. Now, if you think about it, many of his messages are the same ones that I want people to know. But there was something about his delivery that wasn't congruent with his message. The power of these words builds and becomes more specific as we give grace-shaped lives, uh, as, as we live grace-shaped lives in these relationships, doesn't it? I mean, as people whose hearts have been captured by grace, who love in spite of messy lives, who stay connected even through struggles, who hold out hope for healing and reconciliation, who lead with grace and not judgment, who care with tender hearts that open doors that are bolted shut, who have a special place in their hearts for those living in the shadows, who are moved by stories of suffering and step into the breach to heal or at least to hold on to hope, who are marked by gratitude and generosity. And this is, what it, this is what it looks like, isn't it? And to be shaped by the gospel of grace. As a community, as a church, we wanna be this way as a community, don't we? As individuals, we wanna be this way, shaped by the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we want our lives and our words to give grace to those who hear. So the practice I want to challenge us with this week is to ask, 
Who is the person God might be calling you to build up with grace? Once you have that person in mind, I challenge you to take the next step to deepen that friendship. And then ask yourself the question, what is the word of grace that will build them up? There is a power in our words of grace that we use to build up people. But that power, I think, grows even deeper in a friendship. And it grows even deeper when that friendship is in the midst of a community marked by grace. Let me close with this story. Uh, this month, I, I have a chance to go serve again with uh, Side by Side for their winter weekend later this month. And I'm always impressed with the community that gathers to serve. Uh, it's one that is truly shaped by grace. It's a community that is, that, uh, is life-changing, I think, for those who serve and those who experience um, the families that come and are welcomed into that community as part of that community. I remember one family sharing uh, some of the struggle that they had as they came and thought about going to camp side by side or not. Uh, they talked about their life being turned upside down when their son was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, the parents both had few, if any, places that they could share about what was going on in their lives, what they were going through. They considered going to camp side by side and the dad was a little worried about that. He called it camp cry by side. But they, he got over that, and they came anyway. And here's what they shared. They said, our kids were surrounded with love every minute of the day. We had a chance to connect as a couple and actually had time to hang out together. Being able to talk to other moms and dads was really affirming because we were so often in our own realm, isolated. You don't have to, you don't have someone to really share this experience with because who do you know that has a child with cancer? And the dad said, the thing I, I could not, uh, the things I could not talk, talk about anywhere else I could talk about with these other dads. I'd never been able to talk with anyone about it and it was really helpful. And then the mom shared, when we arrived at camp, we immediately saw the love. Many parents were having the question, can a good God exist? And I just felt the, the resounding yes, that God, a good God, is here, and he loves you, and we were all here to show it. And she said, that is what the Camp Side by Side community communicates to parents who are hurting. The power of, of, of a community shaped by grace, lives shaped by grace, as we share the words to help people uh, be built up in grace. Let's pray together. Lord, you want to shape us with your grace. And you want us to use our grace-shaped lives and our words to build people up. Lord, help us to receive and to share this gift. Help us to know who you might be calling us to build up. Help us to take the next step to deepen that relationship. Help us know the right words that will, will build them up. In Christ's name, amen.